Well, we've sung a lot this morning about God's creation, and that's intentional. This world, I think, is like a painting. I'm certainly no art critic, not even much of a student of art, I suppose, but it seems to me that a few questions get asked and answered when we walk up to and stare at a a painting. The first would be, what is it? Right, so our minds immediately latch on to, oh, that's a girl, oh, that's a puppy, oh, that's a sea, oh, that's a farmhouse. What is it a picture of? Unless it's abstract art, this is a, a quick question and answer in our brains. Next question would be, what does it do to me? Am I struck by it? It might not even be a conscious question that we ask and answer in our brains, but It's inevitable for us to walk up to something that's supposed to be pretty, that's supposed to do something to us, and ask ourselves whether it is actually doing it. Am I struck by a complexity going on in this painting? Am I impressed with creativity in this painting? Am I surprised by some nuance in this painting? And then I think another question would be, what does this mean? What does this picture, this painting mean, if anything I know some, with some art, there isn't much of a message there, if it's discernible at all. Some art, on the other hand, is quite preachy, and usually that's not good art. But whatever end of the spectrum we're talking about here, mysterious and no message, or preachy and obvious message, I think it's part of the aim of an art critic, from what I understand, to eventually try to put a finger on meaning. Well... That painting is real, and yet it reflects a greater reality, right? Maybe a story, maybe um, a relational dynamic or a feeling. Creation is like God's painting to us. It's real, but it reflects a greater reality. And we're supposed to do those few kind of questions and answers in any part of experiencing God's creation. We must not only stop and see it, And know what it is, but we have to stare at it and see its beauty, its complexity, and its wonder. We're supposed to be touched by it or struck by it. But further, we're supposed to also ask what it means. What is it saying? God's creation is saying something. Psalm 19 tells us just that. Would you turn there in your Bibles if you have a copy of God's word with you. Turn to Psalm 19, and we're going to this morning focus on just the first six verses of this psalm, which deal with creation. The first six verses of Psalm 19, a psalm of David, say this, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I'd like us to consider five things from this first half of Psalm 19. 
The first is this, that God speaks. He speaks. We should just consider that simple fact. God speaks. We have a talking, communicating God. It's his very nature to reveal. It's his very nature to to commune and to communicate. This tells us that he's also a condescending God. It's condescending for him to reveal to us as he has in words, in human language, or in creation, in what he's made. It's condescending, not in a bad way, in a good way. It's condescending because the words or an image can never fully grasp, get at, or convey who he is and what he's done. We can never really get at all of his attributes and his ways. It's innately limited, this thing of language or this thing of creation. It isn't him. We can't see him. He uses words, what we can see, what we can hear and understand. He uses creation for us to see and for us to know that he's there. It's condescending and it's kind for him to do that. It's kind for him to reveal himself to us in these ways. If he hadn't revealed himself to us, we, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know what to believe. We wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't know what's wrong. We wouldn't know what the fix is. And it's also kind of scary to think about the fact that God speaks and he has revealed himself. You see, if he's spoken, then there's this issue of how we respond, how we should respond, how we have responded, and what the difference is between those two. We'll come back to that a little bit later. We'll just note that at first, that God speaks. But secondly, we can talk about this, how God speaks. You probably already know this, even though we only read the first half of Psalm 19. The second half deals with Scripture. Psalm 19 tells us there are two primary ways that God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in the stars and Scripture, or the world and the Word. Verses 1 through 6 are the first. Of course, verses 7 through 11 deal with Scripture, or the Word. And we'll Look at that, Lord willing, next week, the verses related to Scripture. This week we see David focusing on how God's revealed himself, specifically in this passage, in stars. David focuses our attention on the sky and the stars. But he's not suggesting that God only reveals his glory in the sky and the stars, but not other parts of creation, not on the ground, not in the animal kingdom. No, David is fixating on one glorious part, just like he did in Psalm 8. But everything he says about the stars is applicable to any part of God's created order. So no surprise then that Psalm 104, for instance, focuses on God's ways and his wonder in the animal kingdom. All of it. Every bit of creation, God is speaking in it. He's speaking through it. Well, it's a different kind of speaking. It's silent for the most part. But we could say the silence is deafening. There's irony in Psalm 19. David is trying to communicate 
The very fact that creation is silent, stars far, far away, certainly can't be heard. But boy, they sure send a loud message, don't they? It's a picture worth a thousand words. Notice the language. Verse 1, he says, The world is declaring the glory of God. It's proclaiming. Verse 2 says, it pours out speech. Literally, it's, a, it's the idea of a spring bubbling over, just, just spewing and spewing. A revelation of God in creation is bubbling over and constantly spewing. What's it spewing? Well, speech. Not really speech, because it's speechless speech. It's wordless words. But it's telling Still the same, verse 2 says, it reveals knowledge. The night, he says, reveals knowledge. Just the way night comes on the scene. And what do you see at night that you couldn't see in the day? Stars. If God hadn't given us night, we wouldn't know stars are there. We get to see it, even without a telescope, even sometimes in the city. We get to see stars, and they reveal Knowledge when night comes. A silent yet screaming testimony. Francis Schaeffer famously wrote a book called He Is There and He Is Not Silent. Psalm 19 is telling us he's there and he is not silent. He speaks in part through his creation. The third thing we should think about is what creation says what it says. Creation says at the simplest level that there is a God. God made it, and so he's there. God made it, and so it's his. And so we're his. There are a lot of implications we could draw from that. But we could skip ahead and notice in verse 1 that it calls it His handiwork. What he's made is his handiwork, which means he designed it. It has breathtaking, complex interrelationships and harmony all throughout, right? We call it an ecosystem. We say sometimes, or we hear anyway, unless you're a scientist, you probably don't say it, but we hear from time to time that if this animal or this plant or this rainforest is removed from our system, we're going to have trouble. There's a trickle-down effect. There's design involved in all of it. It has the smell of purpose, not chaos, not chance. So, according to the Bible, unbelief is foolish. Psalm 14.1 says that. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Now, the Bible isn't making fun of you if you're an atheist or an agnostic. The fool is a kind of technical term oftentimes in Hebrew literature. It means he who doesn't own up to what he really knows. He who doesn't do what he should. He, he who goes a certain path and pays the price for it eventually. So it says unbelief is foolish. Here's proof that unbelief is foolish. Richard Dawkins recently speculated the human race could have been started by aliens. 
Did you see this? In a recent interview, and I quote, Richard Dawkins said, It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved, probably by some kind of Darwinian means, probably to a very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now, um, I love that there's an um in there. Now, um, now that, now that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry, molecular biology. You might find a signature of some sort of designer. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. That's really funny. Intelligent design, but it's easier to believe in the intelligent design of aliens. And by the way, this is to answer the question of where did the human beings come from, right? How did that one million billionth of a chance of life spawning from ooze actually happen? And he answers it by saying, well, maybe aliens planted it there. Not answering the question at all of who planted the aliens. How'd they get there? But creation doesn't just say that God is there. If we look closely at Psalm 19, we see, well, we see right off the bat that it, it shows God's glory. This Hebrew word for glory literally means weight. It shows that he's weighty, he's big, he's God. It shows the godness of God. It shows his power. It shows his wisdom. It shows his beauty, his creativity. Shows his ongoing involvement in his creation. It shows his care for us and his provision for us, his protection of us. And it also shows his joy. Creation shows God's joy. Look at Psalm 19, verse 5. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, Of the sun, it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. A bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now this is either the day of the wedding, the bridegroom leaving his house, going to the wedding. That's a happy time. Or it's him leaving the love shack that night. That's a happier time. That's probably what it's talking about. Like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Right? He's been waiting a long time. A long time. And, and now it's here. Wedding night consecration and consummation of the wedding. That's one picture of how the sun rises. It rises with that kind of joy and fervency. Or, look at the second half of verse 5, like a strong man running its course with joy. The strong man is either something like an athlete or a warrior. But it's the end of the race or the battle and he has spent his last bit of energy. They're victorious. And there's joy. Exhausted joy. Well, David says that of the sun, but he's certainly not thinking the sun has emotions. Because the sun's a reflection of God, he means this about God. Right? 
He's really saying that God creates and sustains this world with exuberant joy, like a groom on his wedding night, like a warrior after a victorious battle. That's how our God creates and rules his world. Now remember, these things are not just hinted at in creation. It's not subtle. They're not whispered by creation. Look at the words again in verse 1 and 2. Declaring, proclaiming, pouring out speech, each and every little part doing its part constantly to declare and proclaim. A picture is worth a thousand words, but... When it comes to God's creation, we're not talking about just one picture, are we? We're talking about billions of pictures. We're talking about a whole universe absolutely strewn about with these megapixel beautiful snapshots. And the pictures are far from exact representations of his glory, right? The pictures are more than just real. They represent a greater reality. And the pictures, in a sense, don't fully do justice to the ways of our God. They're hints. They're shadows. Or in the language of Job 26, I love this. Read Job 26 this afternoon, where you see there God's ways and his wonders in clouds and seas, in thunder, in lightning in light, in space. And then the chapter ends with this. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. Right? This isn't the blanket. This is the fringe of the blanket. So in terms of God, his creation, the most spectacular parts of his creation, the more jaw-dropping parts of his creation are the mere fringes of his ways. And notice how far this voice, these fringes, reach, according to Psalm 19. How far do they reach? Well, look at the language. It's quite repetitive. In verse 3, it says that this thing goes out wherever there is a language. Wherever there's a language, they have heard this. Verse 3 says there's no place where their voice, speaking of the stars and really by extension all of creation, there's no place where their voice isn't heard. Verse 4, it's through all the earth. It's to the end of the world. And then in verse 6, just like the sun, which comes up over there and goes down over there, and we know just keeps going around and around There is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun, so there is nothing hidden from God's glory. God's glory, just like the sun, is from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, this is huge. This is huge. You've got to get this. This means that this kind of revelation, God revealing himself in creation, it means that it's not limited by language not limited by time or place, not limited by culture. It's not limited by what sociologists call your interpretive community. It's not limited by anything. It's everywhere. 
It's not based on a certain level of personal education, nor is it limited by a certain level of societal sophistication. Every age and every place has always had the same powerful testimony, this inescapable glory. And by the way, I think all of this rather forcefully implies that there's one God behind it all. You see, if there's a world, and that world is a, a piece of divine communication, then we're not talking about an Anglo God or a Western God. We're talking about a global God, a universal God, a God of all times, even before things like the Bible were written down. That's the third thing, what creation says. Now, fourth, let's consider how we respond. How we respond. And there's a big difference between how we should respond and how we all have responded. We have to note that right from the beginning. We don't see, we don't realize, we don't worship as we should. None of us do. None of us have since Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, you could take Psalm 19 and drive it back to the garden itself and think about its context there. Think about this. Adam and Eve not only had God directly, audibly telling them not to eat of the tree of good and evil, but all of their surroundings in that lush garden were essentially telling them the same thing, right? Even though the tree and the bush and the grass and the sun and the rain and the mist wasn't speaking, it was saying a lot. It was all saying, obey him, he's good, trust him. Look around. Don't you see? He's powerful. He's glorious. He's caring. He's providing. But no, they went against God. They went against his revelation in word and revelation in the world. Both of these. And then sin entered the world. Their offspring followed them. They're born in rebellion. They're born part of a movement of rebellion against God and his ways. Even if they express that rebellion in sometimes more culturally acceptable forms of sin and rebellion. Hence, sin has entered this world, and the consequences of sin have entered this world. In fact, even creation itself is, according to Genesis 3, under a curse. Romans 8 tells us that because of the curse, creation also groans. Creation groans. Remember, Psalm 19 said, creation is speaking, declaring, pouring forth speech. Well, Romans 8 tells us that because of the curse, creation is also groaning. Part of the Psalm 19 speech is that this world is telling us in nonverbal ways that it's fundamentally broken, that it's under a curse. So even the hardness of this world says something divine, says something eternal. God is speaking in the glory and in the grief. It doesn't mean we hear, though. Cornelius Van Til was a theologian and apologist of 
the last century, he said that God is broadcasting on all channels of the radio dial, right? You can't turn the dial of life and find a channel where there is no God, no voice. He said that if there were a channel like that, where we could tune in and not hear God, all of us would turn to that channel. At least all of us would by nature. All of us would apart from the gospel intervening in our lives. Psalm 14, just a few back, told us, No man seeks after God. No one understands. None of us respond to God's revelation of himself in creation like we should. We all twist it. We all either ignore it, ignoring the evidence and trying to stay busy and distracted and just, you know, enjoying perhaps a sunset and making sure it ends on the sunset and it doesn't lead to any other thoughts about God or who made that sun far away. Some outright deny that there is glory or that the earth is groaning. Some reinterpret how this world got here. Some reinterpret what it means for us. Astrology would be a perfect example of that. It sees the stars sending a message to us, but these are weird messages. They usually don't come true. And oddly enough, it's a message without a sender. How's that? I want to know the sender before I enjoy or trust the message. Some deify this world. Native American spirituality does this. So does New Age pantheism. But all of us idolize the things in this world. All of us take people or possessions, good things, and want to turn them into God things. We want to make them a a supreme trust, a supreme allegiance, a supreme love, a supreme satisfaction. None of us see the glory or the groans for what it is. So the story of the Bible goes like this, that there was rebellion, as I said. There's a fall, but in God's mercy there is redemption. God sent his son to redeem us, to rescue us. He did this by dying in our place, dying the death that we deserve living the righteousness that we were called to, but none of us have done. And through faith, believing, simple trust, Jesus' righteousness can be ours and our payment, our debt can go to him where he died in the cross. But that's not the end of the story. There's also more ours, if you want to think of it in terms of rebellion and redemption. There's also reconciliation, right? That God is not just forgiving us, he's bringing us back. He's bringing us back into the fold of the family. He's bringing us back into the communion like Adam and Eve shared with God in the garden. He's bringing us back, reconciling us and restoring things. He has a plan to restore what was lost and even more so And only then can Psalm 19 make sense. Only then can the glory of this earth start to work 
for us to start to see it in its proper place. Which leads us to this last point, what it means for us. How do we apply, live in light of what we see in Psalm 19? What do we do with what Psalm 19 says? Well, I started to talk about this already, and I'll come back to it. The first thing this means is that we must see. We must hear. We must see him. We must hear truth. We must turn what the Bible calls repentance, hating sin, and giving up on a, a way of approaching God and dealing with our sin, and believing in Jesus, his death on our behalf, his righteousness for us. You see, if you're not a Christian, please don't hear me this morning saying anything like, you should just get out to nature more. You should buy a telescope. You should do a hike. Don't confuse me for a park ranger. We need to be forgiven. Okay, there's no really enjoying creation or even getting creation or anything in creation until we get this fundamental problem restored, reconciled, until we're redeemed. Only then will we start to get this world. Only then will we start to handle God's gifts properly. So how are you pursuing joy? How are you dealing with guilt? How do you interpret this pouring forth speech all around you? Are you denying it? Ignoring it? Twisting it? Reinterpreting it? Rejecting it? Just idolizing it? Well, I pray that you would flee to Jesus. Be saved from your sins. And be restored, at least in the process of being restored, because it is a process. But start to be restored to what God has made you to be and what he intends for his creation. Now, if that's you, in other words, you're a Christian, then I want to give you several W's before we wrap this up this morning. I want to write these down under point number five on your sermon notes page. Five W's that can be takeaways, application points for what we do with Psalm 19. The first is watch and wonder. Watch and wonder. In fact, work to watch and wonder God's ways in this world. Now that might first mean that we need to learn to slow down and unplug. Almost all of us swim in a culture... Almost all of us need to swim against a cultural current just to get into the frame of mind which might allow us to stop and to see and to stare and to say to God, how awesome are your works? I fear most of us are too busy to notice that creation is pouring forth speech, that it is silently screaming at us that he's there, that he's glorious, that he's powerful, that he is creative, beautiful, that he is majestic, that he is involved. 
We're increasingly frenetic in our culture. We're increasingly, increasingly addicted to stimuli, and usually e-stimuli. Over the summer, I was at an isotopes game, and in front of us were a couple of girls. They were there with a couple of boyfriends, I guess. And the whole game, they had their phones like this, texting, tweeting, Facebooking, no doubt about what a great time they were having at the baseball game, right? No doubt enjoying fellowship, enjoying relationships. Here they are with people, real people, not e-people, real people. And they're not talking except to occasionally show each other a tweet. (laughs) And then back to this. I couldn't believe it. So I tweeted about it. No, I didn't. Uh, That's why I don't have a Twitter account, because I would head down that path, I think. Uh, Regardless of how plugged in you are, we need, I think, times where we purpose to slow down, unplug, to look around, to stare at things, to notice things to look at a flower long enough to, to see something you didn't see before, to look at a bug long enough to see something you didn't see before, to look at the sky long enough to see something you didn't see before, perhaps, to ponder, to reflect, to take a thought and develop it a few layers, not just an inch deep, but to see how far we can go with an idea or Or a thought, all in service to God's praise and to our greater joy. Which might mean that we do vacations without internet. Or do vacations without cell phone service. (gasps) Oh, I know you'll come home to all these messages and emails. We do this every now and then. We get away to the mountains and and we're gone for a few days. Where we go doesn't have email doesn't have cell phone, and I love it. And I pay for it when I come back, but I know I need the respite of just decompressing. Maybe it means for you, you'll have set times, if your job will allow it, where you refuse to answer the phone. You don't even get up to see who it is in the caller ID. You just let it go because it's dinner time or because it's family game time or because you're on a walk and you left your cell phone at home. Or if you get email on your phone, maybe it means turning off the chime that announces each new email and makes you spring up and give it attention. I wonder if we need to do that or if we like that. If we like that kind of busyness and stimuli. I read a great blog post about this uh, in the last year. I don't know this gentleman. I don't know what he does or um, uh, why he writes on this blog, but I came across this quote. Ben Miller wrote this. He says, It's not busyness that eats the life out of the soul. If busyness means simply having lots to do, people in the past had lots to do. To be human is to have lots to do. 
What wears down the inner life is the impossibility of sustained concentration in a world where everything under the sun is relentlessly, rapidly, even simultaneously presented to the senses with demand for some kind of response, though no response is usually expected. It's the bewildering fragmentation that accompanies unlimited access to everything. It's the barrenness that results when one's most significant contact, quantitatively speaking, is with virtual reality, insulated from the solid pleasures and stubborn challenges of pre-virtual reality. What he means is back porch conversation, rainstorms, weeds, machinery parts, street beggars, handheld musical instruments. It is the lethargy, the listlessness that breeds when all is instant, or is trying to be, when one has forgotten how to be deliberate and to write in pencil. It's not busyness that eats away the soul. It's the acid of catered sovereignty. I think that's well put. So slow down and unplug. That's part of watching and wondering. Also realize that Revelation in Psalm 19, 1 through 6 here, is not limited to nature. God's glory isn't just shown in the stuff of creation. It's also shown in the stuff of life, isn't it? You see, people show us God's glory. And I don't just mean on an anatomical level. I mean how they think and live and act and interact. God's fingerprints are on our quirks, on our uniqueness how he hasn't made us the same. Relationships and surprises, laughter, celebration, justice, music, human beauty, human creativity, ingenuity, innovation. You see, we're made in his image, so all those things, even innovation, in a sense, are part of his reflections in this world. Anytime we watch Sports Center Top 10, anyone know what that is? So there's a Top 10 list every day, a quick video run through of the Top 10 plays of the day. And that really is something about God, isn't it? To see all these how they do that's, right? How they do that. Anytime we say, how they do that. Or anytime we hold a new device in our hands and say, what are they going to think of next? It's an arrow that points us upward to him. That means that your iPhone is either a tool in service to him or it's an idol. It's usually not both at the same time. It takes concentration for us to enjoy these things in a Godward way. And what a wonderful opportunity we have for applying Psalm 19 this week with Thanksgiving coming up. Think Psalm 19 when you enjoy turkey. Think Psalm 19 when it doesn't go so well. Remember? It's glory and groaning in this world and it tells us something about him and his plan. Creation also speaks to believers for their comfort. God's, po- God's power and his care and his involvement 
his joy keep being shown to you in this world, believer. Psalm 19 isn't just for the atheist or the agnostic or the skeptic to show them, hey, God's there. Look around. It's for you. It's for you in your ongoing comfort in the midst of your worry and trouble, in the midst of these groanings in this world. Look around and see. God works with joy. His creation is consistent. He's involved. He's sustaining it. He's providing for it. Watch and wonder and work at this watching and wondering of God's ways. Another W would be to worship. The glory of creation is not to be an end in itself. Verse 1 of Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. It doesn't say the heavens are declaring the glory of the heavens. There's a difference. Oh, the heavens are glorious. But their message is that God is glorious, infinitely more so. Again, it's a, an arrow pointing our gaze upward, upward to God. So we don't just enjoy or marvel at creation. We enjoy and marvel at pieces of his creation in service of better marveling at and enjoying the creator. For to end on enjoying, marveling at creation, is to do the opposite of worship. It's idolatry. Fine line, isn't it? But we are to see, we are to watch and wonder as a means of leading us to worship. We're also, another W, we're to word. I know it should not really be a verb, All these W's are verbs, and I couldn't find a W verb to get what I really mean here, and I mean the word. We're supposed to read the word. I thought maybe I should use the W word that we should weed the wood. (laughs) But I decided not to. My point is this. If it's glory that we seek then we shouldn't be content to look at a star far away, and we shouldn't be content to look at a tree close up, however big it is, or that rock, or that badger. God has spoken powerfully, wonderfully, and uniquely in creation, but he has spoken clearly and savingly in his word. You can get creation wrong. You can get his word wrong too, But it is more clear. John Calvin said that from nature we can know the hands and feet of God, but from Scripture we can know his heart. There's a difference. So yes, look up to the stars, look around this world, use and cherish all of it as a tool for worship, but even more so, look down to the word and keep looking and keep looking, keep hearing. More on that next week. One more W and we'll be done. We should witness. We should witness. We want his glory to spread. We want others to taste and see that he's good. We want others to realize what is going on around them. We want to join creation. Get this. We get to do this. Join creation, join the angels, join God's holy word, and join God himself in declaring, in speaking, 
in pouring forth speech. The revelation of creation is not enough for people to be saved. No one can look at a tree and say, hmm, I wonder if there was a guy long ago who died on the cross for my sins and, and now offers grace to me apart from works. No. Romans 10 says, if they don't hear, they won't believe. If they don't believe, they won't be saved. So we have to go. We have to tell. They must hear of Jesus and his coming, his dying and his rising. And they can't get that from a tree or a star or a rock or a bird. We have to tell ourselves. We have to tell others. And we have to send some who will go to faraway places where the gospel is not. The gospel is not readily available because they have to hear. They will not be saved unless they're told. So we watch and wonder. We worship, we read the word, and we witness.